Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I'm John Lancaster, joined by none other than Matt McKenna. Matt McKenna, again, hooking us up with the beer. What can you tell the people about this beer that you bought here? Uh, I can tell you not much other than uh, I had it once before and it was pretty tasty. And it's the Brew Dog Hazy Jane IPA. Actually, it's a variety pack. There's a few others in there yeah, that pretty I, good. I haven't checked out yet. Well, it only sounds like a fair trade since I fed you this evening. It's true. John made a delicious chicken and... I don't really know what it was. I threw it some was chicken and beans. shallots, and yeah. I only today learned what a, a shallot was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I used it. Sure. I don't really know what it is. Yeah, like, how does one cook a shallot? I don't know. I just Googled it. Matt, what are we talking about today? So this is kind of a, 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 a unique episode in the sense that we're not going to talk about any of the articles that we've published, but we're going to kind of discuss just maybe addressing a counter-argument that people might pose to us. And, uh, you know, I, I know that this is a counter-argument because I've heard this from people that I've been arguing with in real life, <laughs> family, friends. And the point that people make sometimes when they hear some of our arguments, and, uh, you know, I, I think on the podcast we do a decent job putting at least what we feel like is the best information forward. But, of course, we're pointing out problems, and the, to the person hearing this, even if they agree with us, they might say, well, you're pointing out all these issues with American exceptionalism, with double standards, with, with the many flaws in both our domestic and foreign policy, as other people have done as well. You know, and other people get this criticism as well that are way more famous than we are. Uh, yeah. You know, like Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, you know. And the question is to all of those people, anyone who criticizes the American experiment or the American empire, whatever term you want to use is, well, what's your solution to these problems? What's your alternative? And uh, I think it's worth kind of addressing that because I don't want to bore people with, I don't want to pontificate as if if we have all the answers. Right. And also I want to point out like there are some ideas that not just John and I, but many much more well-researched people have posed to these issues, much more well-researched, but also unfortunately powerless people have yeah. proposed to these issues. I think, I think really quickly, like the, the biggest problem really is the lack of sight of seeing these issues. So I think a lot of our podcast again, has focused on pointing out these issues because a lot of folks don't really look at those. So while we will again, dive into a bit of ideas for solutions today, it's not like we know exactly uh, what the solution needs to be. However, just pointing out the issues is important enough. Yeah, I think that what we're trying to do is, like, like not to be corny, but what the podcast name is The Context of Empire. The blog's name is The Context of Empire. We're trying to give context so we we drift out of this myopic view of history where we just focus on the most recent event that's happened. And we give people, I mean, if, if we were to give one large statement about the podcast is like you, if you're an American, if you yeah. live in the most powerful country that's ever existed, you, it is especially important for you to know history and to have context because in theory, if this is a democratic society, you have the power to influence your government. And the more people that don't have that context, the more people are likely to give consent to whatever evil transgression your government's next about to do. Yeah. So, 
First thing I, w- I want to, yeah, we've been talking a lot in the, on this podcast about foreign policy of wars. And if we're going to be offering some type of solutions, I think we start there uh, regarding foreign, po- foreign policy and international relations. Mm-hmm. And before we even get into that, I want to start with the caveat, like just for all the people who point out problems, I want to, yeah. and the rejoinder that if you don't have a solution that you probably shouldn't be talking about that problem. I'm going to call bullshit on that idea as well. (laughs) Even though the rest of the podcast, we're going to offer some ideas that we think could work. I just want to, I want to dismiss that as a necessary qualifier to be able to comment on the, the ills of anyone's society. You know, that we talk a lot about what's wrong with American foreign policy, American exceptionalism, American empire, and the double standards therein. But I don't believe at its core that it's incumbent upon us to have solutions to problems or have a new way of doing things just because we're calling out the problems. You know, if you lived in 1840s America and you lived in a a slave society, I don't think it would be incumbent upon that person to to point out how society is going to work after slavery just because they're criticizing slavery. The same thing goes for every society in need of reform ever, whether it's apartheid South, South Africa whether it's feudalism in medieval Europe, people are not always sure of the solution to a problem or a bet what the better world looks like while they're in the, the world that needs improvement. So right. I just want to dismiss that right off the bat, and not just for John and I, but for anyone who's pointing out one, any of the many flaws to, to not just our society, but all societies, it is not always incumbent upon that person to present a new solution. Sometimes pointing out the problems gives way to developing solutions. Right. That being said, like you, like you said, John, a good place to start, uh, especially because I'm talking and this is more my, my, uh, yeah, the foreign policy, my zone of expertise, if I can put expertise in quotes, <laughs> uh, something I know more about it is foreign policy. And I think it is more than obvious that we need to change our foreign policy in pretty drastic ways. And I'll just focus on, on a few things here that definitely need to change and things that would definitely make not only Americans safer, but of course, more importantly, the entire world. Uh, and one thing that definitely needs to change is that America needs to be beholden to international agreements. Uh, since 1945, the UN has been in existence, the United Nations. Uh, the United States has kind of taken the UN as its personal power structure through which it can maneuver in ways that dictate to other countries uh, its own agenda. This has been especially true since 9-11, where the United States has flat out ignored the, the UN's dictates, whether it be on invading Iraq, whether it be on sanctioning countries around the world, including Iran, Venezuela, uh, previously Iraq, where, where UN officials were resigning uh, one after another in response to the United Nations sanctions on that country, which was killing hundreds of thousands of people. And I think a really good example, a, a narrow one, but one that's really important, is the issue of the International Criminal Court. Yeah. And I think there's really no better example to en- encapsulate the rogue state nature of the United States than its belligerence to the International Criminal Court. Very briefly, the International Criminal Court was developed through the Rome Statute in 1990, I want to say 1998. And the idea was, 
along with these international agreements that preceded it, whether you go all the way back to the Geneva Convention, there's several Geneva Conventions to the UN Charter, to the Nuremberg Trials, all these build precedents to hold uh, individuals and countries responsible for international crimes. And what I mean, mean by that is usually war crimes. The United States helped develop the United Nations. Uh, it, it sits on the Security Council. It's one of five members, permanent members of the Security Council, um, along with Great Britain, France, Russia, and China. And yet, when it comes to the International Criminal Court, the United States has refused to ratify it. And this is extremely troubling because the whole point of the International Criminal Court would be that international crimes are prosecuted, invasion of countries, you know, the, the supreme international crime, uh, torture, crimes against humanity, uh, targeting of civilians. These are all acts that are supposed to be uh, punishable, people held to account by the International Criminal Court, the ICC, functions out of The Hague. And just like to be brief, the only people that the International Criminal Court has ever prosecuted are all Africans. So it's really not the International Criminal Court, right. it's the African Criminal Court. There has never been a white person, well, actually I have to look into Slobodan Milosevic. I, I don't know if he was prosecuted by the International Criminal Court, uh, but the, I know it's disproportionately African, it's something like 42 out of 42, it might even be 41 out of 42. Mm -hmm. um, the point is, it is not a court that prosecutes the the much larger criminals on the planet. That doesn't mean that no Africans are uh, are uh, you know should be subject to international prosecution. You know, you'd look into like people like Charles Taylor uh, in, in Liberia, uh, and and you you come to see like of course there are people who deserve to be prosecuted in Africa, but what are the chances that only Africans need to be prosecuted? And then you get into like. Well, what country has been at war for the last 20 years right. and for most of its history? What are the chances that that country with overwhelming asymmetrical power in the world is not committing war crimes? Right. And of course, the United States is committing war crimes. And the reason that we don't get prosecuted is a very manipulated process where the United States did, as I said before, did not ratify the International Criminal Court. Right. And further than that, in in like the display of extreme hubris, the United States in the buildup to the war in Iraq, it's almost like they planned this, made an act where called the Hague Invasion Act, colloquially, I believe it's called the, the Servicemen's Protection Act uh, in its official term. But long story short, the United States reserves the right to invade the Hague, that's the city where the International Criminal Court functions, should any American ever be detained by the court uh, on an investigation. Now, I, I think that some Americans might hear that and think like, well, of course, our country's going to look out for us, you know, mm -hmm. our, our regular soldiers, the, the common man or woman that serves in the military. But that's not what it is. It's made to protect people like George Bush, like Donald Rumsfeld, mm -hmm. like Henry Kissinger, like name your war criminals, uh, you, you know, Democrats too, like undoubtedly Barack Obama would be charged, uh, John Kerry would be charged for their, their participation in the war with Yemen. Of course, Hillary Clinton would be charged for her participation and, and leading role in the destruction of Libya. It is not as if there's regular people going to be charged by this. It's going to be U.S. officials who have done grave crimes to other countries. 
And then you have to think about like, what does it mean that we don't ever hold our own officials to account? Like, right. like I'm writing about this now. Like, the whole point of the International Criminal Court is that countries don't always hold their own to account. So at least we'll have an international body that will do so, uh, and and to that end, prevent these kinds of crimes in the future. But the United States is so powerful is like, not only do we not hold our own war criminals, uh, international criminals to account, but we refuse to let any international court do so. And by doing so, what we've done is create a situation where crimes go, go not only unpunished, but like you can be commit the worst crimes and you, you could be in the George Bush administration, you could be John Bolton or George Bush or Dick Cheney. And like literally you paid no price. They're multi, multi, multi millionaires. Um, they're, they're actually called on to, they're in some parts of the democratic base. They're not the left wing base, but the kind of liberal nominal MSNBC liberal. These people are like taken into account as like the, the polite Republicans that we can have middle ground with. And these are some of the worst criminals of our time. I mean, it would be hard to find, and I'll just say as a fact, there is no worse crime of the 21st century than the invasion of Iraq, but not just that it was a, the supreme crime of aggression uh, based on the Nuremberg principles, but also that it was totally fabricated. That Iraq was never a threat to the United States. Uh, even if Iraq had WMDs, which they didn't, they, it would, you would not be able to make an argument that they were a threat to the United States. You know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people killed later, 37 million people displaced in the war on terror that came out this week, uh, a big finding by uh, the Cost of War Project. No one's been held accountable. And the fact that Barack Obama went into office and said, uh, with reference to prosecuting the Bush administration for that supreme crime, and not, not just that, but the torch, the adjacent torture, uh, extraordinary rendition. Looking forward, baby. Yeah. He says, we in this administration, we look forwards as opposed to looking backwards, something yeah. to that effect. It's like, Dude, what crime would you prosecute then? There's literally no crime. What, do you only prosecute future crimes? <laughs> like, so, long story short, I know you want to talk about domestic stuff, John. Yeah, well, in a minute, but... It is not helping us to not prosecute, to not hold our own uh, criminals to account. It is no secret in other countries that Americans, American officials are the authors of their suffering. Uh, People in Yemen are not stupid. They understand that when uh, a Lockheed Martin manufactured missile explodes and kills their family, uh, that Lockheed Martin is an American company. And the only reason that the Saudi, Saudi Air Force that's bombing their country and killing civilians in the hundreds of thousands uh, has those weapons is because America continues to unconditionally support them. It would make us safer if we join the International Criminal Court. Yes, uh, uh, some people are going to be prosecuted. We are mostly not going to miss these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about people who are, have run society from an extremely high level that have no connection to you or your friends. We would be much safer. We would be a much better international uh, uh, neighbor to people, to the rest of the world, if we held ourselves to this standard. And I'll just end with this. Yeah. There are a lot of international agreements uh, from the Geneva Conventions, as I mentioned, the UN. Uh, what, I think, what I think is a really telling uh, event in international criminal liability was the Nuremberg trials. Uh, for those who don't know, the, the Nuremberg trials occurred after World War II. And they were 
trials that were greeted surprisingly like with a lot of hope. Uh, Someone who writes about this is Rebecca Gordon, if you want to look that up. But long story short, these were trials that gave hope to, to many people advocating for them that from this point forward, international crimes are going to be punished and not just the crimes committed by the losing party in wars. There was actually hope going into the Nuremberg trials in 1945, you know, throughout the rest of the 1940s, that it wasn't just going to be the Japanese and Americans, you know, the losers of the war, sorry, Japanese and, and the Germans held to account for their crimes, but also the Allied forces committed hor- horrific crimes, whether you're talking about the fire bomb- bombing of Germany, mm-hmm. killing 100,000 people, the fire bombing-, bombing of Japan, which I think killed like 900,000 people. Uh, of course, the, the nuclear Yeah, that's bombs. always an interesting thing. Like the nuclear bomb always gets the focus killing about, you know, a quarter of a million people. But then you look at the fire bombings killing way more. Melting people alive. Seriously melting people alive. Uh, Burning down entire cities. And like even Robert McNamara, who was... Well, I wanted to bring this up because that, that documentary, The Fog of War, where he basically says, not basically, he says like, we would be charged as war criminals had we lost this war. Like we, we conducted... Uh, criminal acts during the war. I think he's talking about Vietnam, I think. No, he's, he's talking, he talking, in that case, he's talking about... He, he, sorry to interrupt you, John, but mm. he's talking about a conversation he had with Curtis LeMay, who mm. was, the, at, at the time, the head of the, the, the leading figure in charge of the bombing of Japan. Okay. Goes on to become head of the Strategic Air Command. And LeMay, for, this guy is a total sociopath, but was more than willing to bomb cities not just in World War II, but like was totally okay with destroying every major city in, in North, every city, not every major city in North Korea. I mean, the Korean War kills 3 million people, openly talked about it, not in a sad way. But LeMay admits himself, and McNamara uh, relays this, like, if we lose this war, we'll be tried as war criminals. And then McNamara, who's, uh, we're not making him out to be a saint, but he reflects on this at the yeah. end of his life. Well, what makes it a war crime if you lose the war right. rather than if that's, you win? That's exactly and, the quote. And the point is, like, is it supposed to be international law or is it supposed to be the law for those people, the countries that win the war right. get to to uh, purpose toward punishing those who lost the war, which, of course, are their enemies? Right. Robert and if McNamara, it's that, it's not international law. Right. Robert McNamara being the Secretary of Defense. So for those Later on, during, yes, during the, the Vietnam. It's like... And as a as an as an uh, aside to that, there there was real hope that the the Nuremberg trials would be an international precedent, right? That that they labeled the supreme crime of aggression is to invade another country. It's the supreme crime because every other crime of the war falls into that. So, mm-hmm. in other words, after, the, after Germany invaded Poland and then subsequently most of Europe, the death camps, even yeah. which were the, some of the most horrendous crimes ever committed. They're, they're, they're below the, the invasion itself because none of that could happen were it not for the original crime. Right. Flash forward, none of those hopes were held true that this would be an international standard. Rather, it became a standard that only those powerful countries were able to hold against, mostly the third world. As you can see, what it translates to is only Africans get committed by, convicted by the International Criminal Court. Uh, they have to hold separate trials. Like during Vietnam, they had something called the Russell Tribunal, which was, if you know who Bertrand Russell was, he was a philosopher. They organized these trials 
and convicted Americans and, and, and like as an aside, like South Koreans and Australians as like kind of the proxies of America for their conduct in Vietnam. And they, they, it's like a very legitimate process. They convicted Americans of genocide. Right. Because we don't hold ourselves to this standard, I think we don't understand just how hypocritical that makes us look in the rest of the world. And it's not just about morality of like, of course, it's wrong to do these things in the world. It was wrong to invade Iraq. Any international standard would dictate that 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 is true. But it's also making us less safe. It it really shows we call other states rogue states. We are the most rogue state on the planet and we violate international law as we please. Uh, I have more examples, but I feel like you wanted to say something. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it does kind of, in a way, jump off of what we were talking about last week with 9-11. A lot of, obviously, you know, 9-11 being a tragic event. However, a result from... You just have to keep repeating that. Just so you know, we think 9-11 was tragic. <laughs> I know. In case you it's were weird. we were it's apologizing weird for it. Exactly. Like, I do feel like I have to say that. Obviously, it's a tragic event. Um, however, like, the result from, if we're looking at the context of it, which we are, uh, a result from our interventions abroad, um, unwelcomed intervention, interventions abroad in, in many cases. Um, but so in, in summary, essentially, if we are going to offer a solution in regards to foreign policy, one of, of many that we can come up with, but, but maybe I think the most important one is joining the international community around, you know, the international criminal court, essentially. Yeah, it's ironic because I think what we're about to get into is like, John and I, I don't mean to speak for you again, but... John and I are generally in favor of criminal justice reform, and generally that favor that that's in favor of reforming it so people are doing less prison time. It, 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 I'm exactly the opposite when it comes to right. the international sections. Like, yeah, we need we actually need to hold to account with probably with prison sentences. I don't want to go more extreme than that. Uh, people who are our own people who have committed international crimes, and we need to stop showing outward belligerence to the international organizations that want to do this. And just as a current uh, event that's happening, the United States is still openly belligerent. In fact, probably more so under the Trump administration than ever before. Maybe it's up there with Bush. But, but, uh, you know, the International Criminal Court wants to investigate American war crimes in Afghanistan, which undoubtedly were committed. What are the chances that they weren't committed? We've been there for 20 years. And there's all kind. I mean, it's, this is well documented stuff. Open slaughter of civilians, the war itself, as we talked about last week, yeah. is very dubious. Uh, it's done on dubious grounds. And like you have Mike Pompeo threatening to sanction and withhold the visa of representatives at the International Criminal Court. It's like, who the hell do we think we are? That we it's an international organization. Either we're we're subject to international law or we're not. And by doing that, you're showing that we're not. And as I've said like 10 times now, it does. it is not making Americans safer to not be subject, to not subject their leaders to international law. Yeah. And I want to jump off of that to bring it to the domestic policy. And since you left off on the kind of irony in, in regards to incarceration or at least crimp, like court systems, uh, I think I'll start there. I, there's only a few points. Obviously, there's a ton of different uh, policies that have been thrown around in regards to solutions to some of these problems. Um, but I'll start with mass incarceration because we just got we just started talking about the court system. And again, there's a ton of different things that we can say here, but I want to keep it concise. Um, 
And we actually mentioned this in one of, I think, our first or second podcast where we say that America is the freest country on earth, and yet we host the, the most prisoners in, in any country. So we have 4% of the world's population, but around 25% of the world's prisoners. Weirdly enough, actually, kind of a, a side note is that's about the same as the COVID case. We have about, I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah it's a, just like about. Um, again, what does it mean to be the freest country on earth when you have the most, the most prisoners in the world? Um, but and, and by rate as well, right? I'm sorry? It's not just population. It's also by rate of incarceration. I believe it is, yeah. Wait, I mean, it's insane to, to just even think of that number, uh, 4% of the population, 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, yeah, so when we say like free, it's like, what does that mean? But there's a ton of different reasons for this. Obviously, the war on drugs being perhaps one of the biggest. So we have you know, folks who, who have... Committing very small crimes, having some possession or something, being thrown in, in prison as a result to either mandatory minimums um, or three strikes laws. And so you have ridiculous things. And this is just a quick example. For example, in California for, for many years, uh, there was a three strikes law that if you had two felonies, the, the last crime would throw you 25 to life. And so you have folks literally stealing a pizza or like a slice of pizza. I forget the, uh, the gentleman's name, but for stealing a slice of pizza, getting 25 to life um, because of it. And so policies like that, and actually I just uh, read an article uh, yesterday that New Jersey's starting to roll back some of these mandatory minimums. But those two policies alone, the three strikes laws, which have now luckily have been rolled back in most states and mandatory minimum sentencing um, are huge, huge uh, problems that, that result in this kind of percentages when we have mass incarceration. And also really quickly, if current rates continue, we can expect in the next 10 or so years for one in three black males to be in prison at some point in their lives, which is, again, an insane statistic that one in three. Um, sorry, I thought, were you going to say something? Or? No, I, I just think that even like beyond the, the war on drugs, which I think more, pe- more and more people are coming around to realize yeah. is, is bullshit, uh, you know, like that's something I kind of take a libertarian stance on um, mm. where like, I mean, I, I would argue that all drugs should be legal, that we're not, we're not at all producing a more uh, safe world or more harmonious world by keeping drugs illegal. What we're doing is creating a black market. Uh, but that aside, I think that when we talk about the war on drugs and how many uh, people have gone to prison for it, we kind of fetishize the nonviolent offender, the person who uh, possessed a certain amount of drugs. And, you know, I, I know like, People, the argument against that is like, well, yes, a lot of nonviolent offenders are in federal prison, but most prisons are state prisons, and right. there are violent, a more, it's a more uh, dominant violent offender in in state prisons. But I think that's also not taken into account a, a lot of context to people become more. People don't become less violent in prison; they become right. more violent in prison. And of course, you know, most people can identify that. There's a in, there's a a economic dynamic here where of course crimes are disproportionately committed by people who are economically disadvantaged. So even when we talk about the violent offenders too, I don't want to I don't want to just excuse I don't want to go to that place where like well of course violent offenders need to be in prison. It's only the nonviolent offenders. I think we have a massive problem in this country of of incarceration mm-hmm. and something that we'll get into that it. it, it absolutely has roots in the extreme economic inequality that affects 
crime being it, it directly yeah. affects the, if, the crime rates. If you're not asking why does crime happen, like when folks bring up that kind of other point where I'm sure you've heard this point of like, well, you know, 50% of the violent crimes happen from African-Americans, 50% of homicides. If you're not asking like, why do you think crime happens? If you're not asking that question, you're doing it wrong. Like if we don't see that crime as a direct result from economic factors, then we are way off base because it is absolutely a direct result. Another quick aside. And then you can challenge them on that. Like, well, what is it? Do you like, because most people who say that will like, will try to defend them, them themselves. As, well, I'm not racist, but right, the here's classic. the facts. And then you have to, well, what do you think? It's genetic? Right. Uh, yeah, so that's exactly, like that's what they would it. have to, the argument would have to be it's genetic. Because like, otherwise, or, exactly. Right. Um, and just a quick aside, I have to bring up this yep. aside just because. We love asides on oh, the show. Don't worry, I'll come back to mass incarceration in just a moment. But the, the aside in terms of, the timely aside of, uh, I was just watching, um, Trump's town town hall meeting. I don't know if you saw that on ABC. I believe it was. You'd be surprised how few George Trump Stephanopoulos hall meetings I watched. <laughs> um, an interesting one because he was first. I, I think this is the first time I've really seen him challenged by by regular voters. Like he's always usually with like his his people entourage. Yeah, so it was interesting. But he mentioned this this kind of like just talking about crime in general. Again, I'll come back to mass incarceration in just a moment. But where he mentions like well. If you look at, you know, violent crime in cities, all of them are run by Democrats, right? That, that's like the, it's like, if you look at like the top 10 um, cities with crime, they're all run by Democrats. And just that alone, like, we have to really look at that because cities are most often, urban areas are most often Democrats, right? Yes. Like that's, that's even just, in, in red states. That's even true. in red states. Yeah. I mean, like they're usually the lone the lone blue, yeah. the blue part of the state. So obviously, most if we can agree that most cities are run by Democrats, then obviously those cities with crime are going to be run by Democrats. But you also have to factor in where crime happens is with opportunism and when people are close to density. And so you're not going to have a ton of crime in a rural community. You're it's a lot more have, work. You've got to go find people. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, I had to pick apart that argument a little bit. Of course, crime happens in cities, and it just so happens that many of those cities vote Democratic. So, of course, there'll be Democratic mayors um, of those cities. Yeah, that's a silly argument. It's a, it is a it's uh, But the last thing I want to mention with mass incarceration is um, the conditions in which some of those imprisoned um, have to endure. And we're, we're talking, in some cases, um, solitude, or sorry, solitary confinement is allowed, which is 23 hours a day in a very small room, I think it's like 10 by 10 or so, um, one hour of outside activities. And because of that, um, a lot of states, New Jersey, I believe being one of them, have been sued for cruel and unusual punishment. So That well, sounds like torture to me. It, sure. it, I mean, 23 hours a day in, in a single room. And so when we're looking at mass incarceration, again, I don't want to just, obviously there's huge, huge problems. And I think now it's finally reached across the aisle where I think most folks would say, mass incarceration is a problem. The solutions they might disagree on, but we obviously have to um, look at the war on drugs and end it. I think I'd agree with some parts. I don't think all of what you're saying, Matt, in terms of legalizing all drugs, I have to think about that, but um, definitely yeah, legalizing. that's a whole other podcast, but, but what I mean by that is like, we don't have to get into specifics, but 
what are we doing by keeping drugs illegal? Is it stopping? Is it doing the purpose that you want it to? And then we can get into like the specifics. Does that mean I think, you know, you should be selling heroin in the uh, right. grocery store? No, I think that's <laughs> not what that means. I, the pharmaceutical just, I don't section. think it should be a, uh, I don't think that it should be something that we uh, look at as a crime and, and certainly not something that has a, a prison sentence to it. Right. Yeah. And obviously, again, like marijuana being a schedule drug is, is crazy. Um, that has to be revisited, um, and of course, I won't get too, I won't go too far into this, but prisons literally like private prisons making a profit off of prisoners like it's gross. How do we how do we rationalize like yeah, let's do that like let's make pris- like private prisons. Who like what do you think that lobbying is going to look like? Is it going to look well, like better? They certainly have lobby power, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. And of course, they're going to lobby for. You know, bills that put more prisoners into their private prison. Yeah, it's like, like I talk about this and like, you know, I talk about this with my class and then I'll talk about it with family and friends. It's like, sometimes I feel like they think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It's like, no, it's like really basic. Uh, any institution tries to re- reproduce itself. So, I'm, you know, I mostly talk about the military industrial complex. It's not yeah. conspiracy <clears throat> theory to think that Raytheon wants to keep selling missiles like right of course like this is what they do it's like how they make this is literally how they make money it doesn't that doesn't mean that they openly say hey start a war right. it means that they they fund think tanks they they lobby politicians that are going to play up the threats of of reasons that they would need to continue to produce missiles right and it, you know, it's it's far less it's actually a lot more boring than most people would make it out to a conspiracy theory to be but like these are like these are really obvious things that institutions attempt to reproduce just like themselves just like any department of any institution is going to justify why they need the same amount of money the next year right and you know like once you start understanding that you start realizing like the the funders of our politicians the funders of the think tanks the lobbyists the and the super PACs are not in it for no reason right <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the whole thing, and we'll talk about this later, but I just want to put this on the table, that the whole thing around mass incarceration, and it remi- really quickly, it reminds me of, I do, um, there's a, a day in school called the International Day of Tolerance where I do a quick presentation on mass incarceration. It's a mouthful. You know, but um, I show a, uh, what a prison looks like in, in Norway, I believe, and it looks very different. Like they have, it's almost like a, if you picture like a college dorm where they have like a kitchen. They have their own rooms. Um, and a lot of students obviously can't believe that. But it really comes down to this cultural thing of what do we, what do we want? Do we want retribution for those who've mm-hmm. committed crimes or do we want rehabilitation? And that's really the dichotomy here is like, what do we want? Obviously, I believe Norway, um, I think it was in Norway, but um, Scandinavian countries in general have picked rehabilitation. I don't think there's any real debate that we've picked retribution, but... Yeah, I mean, we've picked retribution, and, and um, I think we need to look at prison for what it is, and, and we need to divorce the idea of what someone deserves. Like, that's such a present thing in our thinking with criminal justice. What does that person deserve? Right. And we need to start rethinking that in terms of how does that person become a more productive member of society. And, of course, like, it all comes down to, like, who is going to prison versus who is not. And it, it always goes back to the economic inequality, the power dynamics. 
the greatest criminals in this country do not go to prison ever. Right. 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 Going back to the the ICC that you were talking international criminal court. international criminal court, but also in domestically. Oh like yeah. The, like, I mean, it's just that we haven't identified the greatest crimes as being crimes against people. Like, you know, at some point in the future, hopefully, they'll look back at this time and think, you know, lobbying to keep uh, universal health care. Uh, an impossibility should probably have been seen as a, a pretty grave transgression against right. the American people. Yeah, um, and it just until we have a, a a criminal justice system that actually prioritizes punishing the worst criminals, I'm never going to be in favor of a of a uh, of a punitive system. Yeah, uh, and to that end, I, I fully believe in like we need to move toward a more rehabilitative system yeah of course and again these are cultural things which again we'll talk about in a few minutes but you mentioned two things there and obviously i can talk about domestic policy for for a long time no you should because i talked forever about no no it's fun but like you mentioned about one part of foreign policy for like 20 minutes (laughs) as you do matt but like we, we were mentioning like the economic um kind of side of how mass incarceration works that obviously these this these have economic components and so i do want to talk about the economy you just mentioned healthcare as well um, so i want to talk about just those two and obviously there are many many other domestic policies um that we could talk about but i do want to focus on the economy i think that's something that i'm very passionate about in terms of uh, the wealth inequality and then i'll talk about healthcare a bit of course chime in that because uh your your opinions matter are important. Um, but I've mentioned this in, in other podcasts with the economy. You know, when we have one tenth of the top percent, so we're talking point. Yeah, that blew my mind. Sorry yeah. to interrupt again, but like you didn't say one percent. You said no, no, no. One tenth. We're talking one tenth of one percent. We're talking point oh one percent. Wow. Own as much wealth as the ninety percent, the bottom ninety percent. So take that in for and a I moment. I think what I said when you said that was well, they. Surely they're working harder. Yeah, right. They're working. They must be working at least so 500 like, times harder. So to, to like these, these point oneers, mm-hmm. as we might call them, they, um, point, probably, yeah. they probably look at like the guys who are, and women who are in the top 10% like they're living in poverty. Yeah, right. right. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> like these poor guys. They only have a boat with my yacht. Yeah, I've, I've heard similar stats where it's like, you know, like Bernie's always like. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Got Three people in this country making more than 140 million people. Well, yeah, it's it's literally like that stat is the 15 people in this country are making as much as 130 million people. That's nearly half of the 15 people are making nearly half of what this country makes. That's insane. Well, they did. They made smart decisions and they uh, they worked the system correctly. And you know they they got small spend ones. most of their days working. <laughs> but like this is the. We have to look at this, and this is something that you know we talk about a lot on this show. Like we have to look at this as radical. Like this is not the norm, right? Yeah, like, it, it's extreme at a at a level that it, that is going to result in violence at some point. At some point down the road, I don't know. We'll see when. But like, what, I mean, we was um, the pre revolution France as bad as this? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean. I don't know what the three estates. I teach the Gilded but, Age, and I know that we're at a very similar. Yeah, point. we're very similar to the Gilded and there, Age. That wasn't like people don't talk about that. That was an extremely violent period. Oh yeah, and, with um, like strikes and and war, especially workers. Like strikes that we don't like think about. That's today. exactly. You know, we were talking about. Um, I believe it's pronounced properly as Carnegie 
and not Carnegie. Oh, but man. Carnegie. Teaching years incorrectly. Oh, man, I think. But, yeah, we're talking about, um, you know, his, his role in putting down these strikes, which is actually kind of like, look, just, we were talking about this earlier, that's why I'm bringing it up, but even looking at some of the scale of these strikes, it's like, yeah, like, and it's I'm surprised badass. that, yeah, it's kind of badass, and it's also like, why are we not thinking that way? At the, at, we're at the same kind of place now, and yet, I think the unionization and worker confidence in terms of, like, solidarity is pretty low, unfortunately, but... You look at well, like, they were in a, a more desperate place, and we, sh- we should, you know, we should identify there are improvements since the Gilded Age. Sure, but right. the wealth inequality is on par, and but we got to talk. The improvements have come from proper regulation, exactly. Right? And, and you know, like we always go back to, we always go back to this, like, yeah, they didn't come from people like asking for the nice right. thing for their people in power to do. They came from. Uh, Sometimes violent action, but at least mass scale pressure in the form of strikes, right. uh, work stoppages, uh, and, and just general uh, political upheaval. They didn't come from, uh, you know, hoping that your representative was going to do the right thing. Yeah, and I think uh, really quickly because you sent me that article about uh, from Eugene Debs. Oh, with, so good. The, was the Haymarket strike right? Uh, uh, no, the. Uh, it's kill, kill me! I can't, not the hay. It's not the no. hay market. It's the one with Carnegie. Carnegie, um, Carnegie. Uh, it's not the hay market strike. It's it's one. I, of the, I, I did read it again. The, the details escape me, but uh, you know it, it is interesting that we have like again a similar level of inequality. And if those regulations now weren't in place, you could expect the same thing. And I was reading Carnegie putting. I think he was in uh, France at the time, uh, but Frisk putting in. in you know, it's his, his business partner, his Frisk. business partner, Frisk, putting like electric fences around uh, the factory so that the workers couldn't leave or couldn't strike. But all of this comes down to, again, we're talking about wealth inequality. where We have a huge conf- concentration of wealth in not just the 1%, but it is huge in the 1%. Uh, but even in the 0.1%, even like the top 10th of 1%. So... Uh, again, I don't want to talk only about the problems. Hopefully, this is well known that we have this type of inequality. Um, in terms of in terms of solution, um, like we need to to redo the tax code. Like right now, uh, I believe the top tax rate is thirty five percent. Which again, we have to see this. This is not the norm. Like this is not what other countries do, and that does not make it better. I think a lot of folks are like, "Yeah, we're kind of like that's the American exceptionalism." Like, yeah, of course we're not like those other countries. Right. So we'll, yeah, and that's the last thing we'll talk about today is the, the culture right. of just accepting these kinds of. But you look at any other, you know, comparable country, um, tax taxes are much higher on on those wealthy folks. And again, we're not saying, and I think this is a common misconception. It's one that we talk about when I've gotten a message about is when we say like something like a seventy percent marginal tax rate, we're not saying we take seventy percent of their money. Like that is not how that works. That's not how taxes work. It's above a certain threshold. So everyone is taxed the same amount. And it could be, it depends on the policy. Obviously, it doesn't exist yet. But it could be everything above 50 million is taxed 70 you know, if you make $50 million, You're, I actually am very okay with taking... Not just seventy, but like ninety-eight percent. You're you're fine if you're doing if you're pulling in fifty million. Yeah, you're fine if you're pulling in one million. But to be clear, that person who's maybe making a hundred million, maybe fifty million to a hundred million is taxed at seventy percent. But everything below that is taxed at the same rate that you're taxed. That's how a marginal tax rate works. We're not taking 
I, I can't believe I got a message about this uh, from someone on Facebook saying like, well, you know, if we tax them at, uh, at 70%, they're only going to have this much amount of money. It's like, no, no, no. We're not taxing everything. The whole has 70%. It's marginal. So that is definitely something that needs to happen again. It's happening in other countries that for some reason, well, we can go on explaining the reasons, but we have a tax rate that favors for sure those who are wealthy. Um, and then, of course, there's like other huge problems with corporations, with offshore accounts, loopholes that we have not addressed deliberately or not deliberately. We lose about $100 billion. For, tax havens. Yeah, for, through tax havens, mostly in the Cayman Islands. Um, well, well, sorry to interrupt, John, but that kind of goes back to like we need to be an international neighbor yeah. to, our, to other countries. And like instead of viewing the world in, in the terms of competition, imagine that, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about with 9-11. And I feel like I keep going back. Like, this relates to another thing that we talked about. Right, time. I know, but I know. In all seriousness, this relates to what we were talking about, where it's like things like 9-11 uh, and the sympathy, global sympathy that was uh, bestowed on America at the time. Like, these were opportunities to pursue international goals if we had a fair system, one of those goals would be to eliminate these tax havens. For sure. So it's not just Americans that, that um, benefit, it, the richest Americans who don't serve America in, in a way that's beneficial. It's, it's, it's the oligarchs in every country that shouldn't be able to hide their money in offshore accounts. Um, and, and we, sh- like, we should term that what it is. It's theft. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it is it, looting, if you will. It's looting, yeah. And we should term it that way. It's, as you said in the, our second podcast, like t- term it for what it is and shame it, shame these people for what they are. Right. Yeah. And, it, and some of these companies are so good at hiding their money that they get tax rebates. Like they're not paying, they're getting paid tax rebates because of how well they're, they're hiding their money. And it's so, it's crazy to me, the argument that, and Trump's argument too, that like these people are the smart ones. Like these people are right. smart. It's a social Darwinism right. almost approach to it. Like if you can pay no taxes, you're doing everything right. You're, you're playing the system right. You're the smart guy or girl. But like how is that not – and how can those same folks, which are often the same folks, uh, tell – you know, perhaps there's like one individual or a couple individuals uh, making not much money, getting a bit more uh, welfare through playing the system – getting fractions, fractions, fractions of what these big corporations are getting and somehow ignore the giant problem of corporations looting money from the U.S. government and from paying taxes and then look at, like, working-class folks, um, you know, again, a, a fraction of those actually getting welfare who are trying to play the system, which I don't believe actually happens at, at all, the rates that are trying to be, that folks try to uh, say that it is, but and focus on that and not corporations... Again, like looting money from the American government. Um, so, I mean, in terms of solutions to, to this huge wealth inequality problem, and it is a problem, um, obviously we have reforming the tax code. Like that, that's a simple one. Closing these tax loopholes um, in which, you know, we have offshore accounts. Um, and there's a bunch of other loopholes as well. Um, but also there's two other things. One is the estate tax. So essentially, people of, of enormous wealth can leave their estate um, fairly tax-free for their next of kin. And again, the estate tax we're talking affects about 
0.05% of folks. Like we're talking right. a, a fraction of a percentage of folks, of the richest folks. Um, They're not going to be suffering. No, course. not at all. And and yet the rate on the estate tax is low and Trump just is actually just praised for, by lowering it as if it's helping the working class. It's not, I'm, I, it's not affecting anyone in the working class at all. This is affecting the, the fraction of percent who own a ton of things in their estate. Right. Um, the, the, correct me if I'm wrong. That that is mostly uh, applied to people who have inherited their money, right? Th- that's exactly what it is. Yeah, folks who inherited. I uh, earned the this money, right, through my dad, who also didn't earn it. And we're talking <laughs> the, the federal estate tax is in excess of 11.4 million. So it's it, there's no tax up until 11.4 million, and the taxes, or excuse me, sorry, I think. Yeah, in excess. Sorry, so eleven point four million, and then the tax is fractional. It's a, it's should be raised by much more. Um, and then lastly, like, and this is kind of a Bernie Sanders thing, but I think it is proper. Is we have a situation where the oh eight oh nine recession was caused by Wall Street speculation and asking them to pay a, a very small speculation tax um, because of the ginormous bailouts that the financial industry uh, got during that time would be only fair. And even now, to be clear, only now it's even the consolidation of those finance industries are even worse. Like we have- Well, yeah, and Bush and o- Obama, uh, they basically, they, I know Bush had the, uh, was it Bush that did the TARP, the, the Troubled Assets Relief Program? Yeah. Um, uh, no, I believe- I forget, but well, long story short is Bush and Obama- didn't prosecute anybody. They 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 forgave these people and 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 uh, you know Bush offered I think like five hundred dollars stimulus to people while you know people were getting kicked out of their home shortly after that. Barack Obama did nothing yeah, for the Bush. the people whose houses were foreclosed on them, but bailed out the the all these uh, the the Wall Street firms. You know and you know shocker the he he does four hundred thousand dollars speeches for them right. <laughs> But like even today, we have the finance like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, owning around seven point five trillion dollars of assets. That's about half of our of America's output, which is in, an insane amount of concentration of wealth. Like if if we were smart about what happened in 08 and 09, we we'd start breaking down these ginormous companies so that something like 08 or 09 wouldn't happen again, and we are worse than we were back then yeah and something uh there's an author uh thomas frank uh he he wrote a book called uh what's the matter with kansas yeah in uh back in like oh five or maybe oh four regarding like how the republican party con people and then he he's uh, an equal opportunity lender and he he goes after the democratic party for uh for their marriage to the corporate corptocracy yeah and uh, how the it turned away from the working people, and the idea that the 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 big banks, the the Wall Street firms that screwed over people in the oh eight oh nine crisis, they didn't even not a single company got reduced. They didn't put any. They didn't attach any uh, terms to like restructuring these companies, mm-hmm. and you know you can see how that has effects. Like when the average person gets kicked out of their home for the dis. The decisions made by and the speculation made by these companies, like I, I hate the argument like that's the only reason that Trump got elected, but 
it certainly had an effect, right? Like, yeah. It certainly had an effect of people with disadvantage, tired of the system and want to vote for this lunatic who's, right. who's uh, raving against the system, totally uh, in a... In a way that's disingenuous, but in a way that appealed to people who had been like really fucked by this system and really fucked by decisions that were made by the Obama and Bush administrations to favor these big firms and big banks over the common person. Yeah, and, and what's the matter with Kansas is all about how these political parties have have kind of tricked uh, working class folks to vote against their own interests. And I want to just talk. One last point on the economy. Obviously, there's a bunch of things that that we've went over, including you know reforming the the tax codes, um, the estate tax, um, and putting a, a speculative Wall Street tax as as proposed solutions. But one of those um, one of those things that I quickly want to talk about is what's the matter with Kansas again? Having the working class vote against themselves and their own interests, and and it all comes down to this idea of the trickle down, right? That's kind of a lot of these folks believe that taxes need to be low for those at the top because that money will trickle down. The top are the job creators. And so if they have more money, they can invest in more capital, create more jobs. And there you go. The working class can, get, can be benefited. But obviously it's complicated. But in short, that's not how it works. And in short, those at the top will not create jobs because the, the creation of jobs is not how much money they have, but the demand that they have. So like, for instance, randomly, I don't know, if you have a pencil manufacturer who's making a profit, just because they have more money from a tax cut, why would they make more pencils? There would be no one to buy them. So <laughs> it, they would obviously just keep that money because the demand hasn't increased. So why would they create more jobs to, to meet a non-existent demand? Um, and obviously it's complicated, but just I hope that short example just shows like uh, tax cuts for the top does not create jobs and it will not trickle down unless there's a major shift in the economy in which demand for their product actually increases. And so they will hire more folks to meet that demand. But if there's no, if all we're doing is cutting taxes at the top, that just allows the top to consolidate more wealth. And I just wanted to point that out very quickly. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then one more thing I I would add in in terms of like, the American difference from a lot of the industrialized world is we need to embrace the idea that workers make the companies run. Like if, if we are going to have this world where we're not going to go full socialist and have a state on everything, uh, which, you know, that's another conversation, but if we are going to continue in this private semi-private, uh, world where private industry is, is, uh, something that we're going to continue with, a nice idea would be to have employees on the company boards, and this was something brought up yeah, uh, yeah. in like one of the one of the debates, the Democratic debates, and Mike Bloomberg shrugged it off like this was a communist idea. It's not that it's not that radical, and Germany has this kind of uh, policy, and um, the idea would be that if employees were actually on the boards of companies, then you would not have the situation where the CEO makes, you know, 320 times the average employee, the company, because of course the employees would never allow that kind of situation to happen. That's a pretty minor reform that I think that we could embrace on, uh, on a nationwide scale. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, these are, these are not uh, new ideas. Like these, 
these companies do exist, actually. I, I can't remember the term off the top of my head, but these kind of collaborative companies where, where workers kind of sit on the board, they exist and they've been found. Studies have shown that they are more productive than in companies that don't have that. Again, the, the term escapes me. But do we want to talk about healthcare, Matt? I, I know we can. Uh, I know I, we're. I wanted to. I mean, I have no time on it, but I. I I wanted to talk about end with the talk about culture, but sure. we, we can uh, I, I, by all means get into healthcare first. But before we move on yes. to this one, uh, I, I just wanted to throw in the idea that we need to appreciate that everything that we're talking about here, none of this is radical. Like yeah. the, the, I feel the like way we always things, have to say that, yeah, like like the way that that things function now are radical. Um, the the idea that we have uh, five hundred thousand homeless people and we refuse to address that that's pretty radical. Um, so just in terms of addressing these issues, you know, we need to toss terms like radical and extreme kind of out the window because you know just look at how these terms have been used historically. You know, at any point that you're advocating any kind of change, people are going to view you as being radical. Yeah, like, and in, in, in also in both of the sections we've talked about, like, spending $650 billion a year on a military is, like, no other country, literally none. Not even that. the next 10. Not even, I think it's 8, I think, but it might be 10. But also the military budget is not 650 now. It's right, it's now 730. 740. It's 740. I think $738 billion, right. So, again, that is radical. We, that's that's more it's than extreme the next in like a degree that like we can't even express. It's way more extreme than any idea that you'll hear from like the the uh, LSD ridden uh, anarchist. <laughs> I'm just tripping to stereotype, but like that is a way more extreme and way more consequential thing than any idea you'll you hear in like your stereotypical uh, Brooklyn lefty drum circle. Right. Yeah. Having 800 military bases abroad is a radical idea. No other country does that. It's a radical thing. Um, having 25% of the world's prisoners, but 4% of the population is a radical thing. Extremely radical. Having the, the it tax is a, code. You know, it is exceptional though. See, and, and I, that's the big problem. And I was going to say, even with the economy, this tax, the tax policy we have, it's a radical thing. But radical does not like, just because we do it, I, that's what we have to dispel. Like just because we do it, for, that does not mean at all that it's good. In fact, oftentimes it means it's bad. <laughs> oftentimes... A lot of other countries get it right, but we we do something different, um, and and it doesn't work. And just because we do it different, I think people feel pride in that. Like, yeah, we're not doing it like these other countries, like these European, Scandinavian countries. We're doing it the American way. Why? Why are we doing it that way? Because it's not working for a lot of folks. But but thank you for bringing that up. That that point about radical. I think we always kind of bring that up. That these ideas aren't yeah, radical. Um, and and of course historically, like what what has been like a radical shift would we look back at now as being like common sense? You know, like any person that's ever been advocating for a change in society has been advocating for what potentially could be a radical shift. And right. you know, the what makes us think we're so unique living in the United States in twenty twenty, uh, in terms of a historical context. Yeah. All right, so I'll talk just about one other thing. I know I've only talked about like three items on domestic policy, and again, there's so many issues. No, that's your that's your uh, your zone of expertise. I know, in quotes, expertise in quotes. But 
I'll talk very, very briefly about healthcare, and then we do want to kind of bring this back to the larger point, kind of what we were talking with mass incarceration with the retribution versus rehabilitation, but just the general kind of culture that we have uh, around these issues and, and the need to shift there. But very briefly, like the healthcare system, we have around 40 million, we have 40 million or so folks in America that are not insured, and, and many, many, many more millions that are um, underinsured. Hmm. So, Again, and we'll talk about the values of that when we look at like, well, what does America value and what's the culture when we have, you know, this many, this many people that are not insured or underinsured. Um, it, it's insane to think about. And in terms of proposing solutions, of course, I would propose, you know, Medicare for all. I think that is, again, not a radical idea at all. Every other modern and Western country does provide some type of health care for its citizens. Um, the fact that we don't is the radical piece, right? Um, and, and a lot of folks, you know, when they look at this Medicare for all stuff, they're like, well, you know, they always point to examples like, well, government can't run everything, anything right. There's so much inefficiency, et cetera, et cetera. When you actually look at Medicare, how it exists now, with every dollar you spend for your health insurance, if you're on Medicare, about 95 to 97 cents goes to your actual health, not administrative costs, not paperwork, not coding. If you know anything about healthcare coding, it's a whole, whole mess. If you're on a private insurance, around 80, 80 uh, cents goes to your uh, actual health. So that means about 20 cents goes to somebody coding, paperwork, administration, etc. obviously driving up costs for those types of jobs. You have right? an artificial middleman you ha- exactly you have this artificial middleman who is like the mafia yeah know? pretty much skimming uh those premiums off you so um you know what we could we could debate if if government's good at running particular things but medic it has healthcare down like medicare works in terms of the cost it's lower than private insurance companies i mean look at the results too like yeah the, if you look at where does the united states stand in terms of outcomes and you know, just right. look at the list. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I know it's not good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and when you have a situation where folks in a country are deciding like, should I, should I pay my rent or should I check out this lump I have? Right. Like that's the, that's the true, um, that's kind of the truth about citizens in this country. Like having to decide whether they eat and pay rent or whether they get actual health care. That's an insane thing. That's a, that is a radical idea. Um, and, and we should have some type of system in which everyone can get the healthcare that, that they need to get. And just alone right now, every year, a million people go bankrupt because of healthcare costs, because of medical costs. I mean, that should be enough right there to, to say that we need a a radical shift in, in what we're doing. The, The idea that, you know, like imagine, imagine that was, that was leveraged as a point where we, we, you know, we're not, we're actually not going to take this. No one is going to pay their healthcare bills anymore. No one is right. going to pay, pay this anymore. And it's like, that's the kind of thing I would hope that that kind of anger, I would hope that would, that would uh, elicit in people. Yeah. And that's all about the collective action, the, yeah. the working class action. Like which... imagine everyone just said, you know what? No, fuck off. We're not going to pay our medical bills. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you have this situation where so many people are going bankrupt because of medical bills, and, and kind of what you were saying before in terms of the outcomes, like we pay twice as much or so than these other countries with some type of government-run program, insurance program, and yet don't have very good outcomes in terms of our health care. Like we don't get the same level of care that folks in, in other countries do. 
And so we're spending twice as much for for nothing worse in return these than these programs. And just to be clear, like Medicare for all is not a government-run health care program. It's a government-run insurance program. You have some folks on, on the far right making this crazy argument. I don't know if you've heard this, Matt, of like, well, if we have some type of government-run health care, it's like slavery where you're forcing um, Medicare, uh, medical workers to work. Like you're forcing them against their will. They don't get to choose. They have to treat everyone. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this argument. Rand Paul. I haven't. Uh, Rand Paul, I think Ben Shapiro has made this argument, but Rand Paul has, has said this as well. And it's again, it's a cre- like private private medical practices exist under Medicare for all. This is not like a everyone's going through the government to to become licensed and everything. It's like all it is is a, a government run insurance program that can negotiate prices so that you're not paying exorbitant premiums for for pretty bad care in comparison to the rest of the world. Um so so in terms of the healthcare again a possible solution and probably, in my mind, one of the best solutions is a government-run insurance program like Medicare for All to reduce costs, get better care, get those 40 million people insured, and again, the other many millions who are underinsured, properly insured, um, because again, the, the administrative costs for Medicare are low. The cost for premiums will go down. Um, actually it would be zero, but I guess the net costs of those quote unquote premiums would be less than what you're paying for a private insurance company. Yeah. And, and, and this is not an issue I know as much as you is about, uh, but I will, I will throw in that like this idea that these socialistic kind of policies are bad and that you're getting your money robbed from you. Mm. I think it's kind of a, as we get into the culture aspect of this is a common trope that you hear put forth and then I, I would just question like how much are people going to care about seemingly like other people getting by on their quote unquote dollar i think this is if a good like yeah you know like if we have develop a system where most importantly your health care is covered but also like start thinking about things like housing mm-hmm. start thinking about things like having a livable living wage uh having being able to provide provide your family with food and shelter if these things are covered, how much will we care that we're paying more in taxes? Right. And like the we is kind of a loose, loose subject there because, uh, you know, you and I are not going to be paying the most in taxes. We're, we're, we're talking about taxing very wealthy people. And, uh, you know, and of course, like you, you bring up the far right and of course they're absurd and ridiculous. I don't know if I would classify Rand Paul as far right. I think he's Yeah, he, he, he made this during a... Ben Shapiro is not a very smart person. Yeah, and, you know, yeah he made it. I, I couldn't so believe... talk shit about him. <laughs> no, I, I really couldn't believe that Rand Paul. And he kind of quietly parroted this. Yeah, I'm like hit or miss on Rand Paul because like he's, he's really terrible on economic stuff, but like... You know, he'll like be like, and the drug war, man, and the wars. <laughs> so yeah, he has some libertarian in him. Yeah, for sure. that's why like I'm always hit or miss with libertarians. Um, the last thing is like, of course, like this debate to begin with is manufactured because Republicans and Democrats they all take money from the insurance companies in the pharmaceutical industry, and it's just until we understand that they don't that. Um, we don't need to respect private insurance, private uh, pharmaceutical companies as as an interest group. Of course, they're going to manufacture the argument 
in a way that prioritizes uh, not having Medicare for all. Yeah, and I think the, the other way it's manufactured, something that we've brought up a bit, is that this is not a, an unpop like this is a popular program. Extremely. It, it's like 88% of Democrats, not, not far lefties, right. Democrats, and like 60% of Americans in general support Medicare for all. Right. So this is like a popular program um, that the majority of Americans want. Like, and yet. And yet we don't have it. So um, it tells you about the power of these industries. For sure. And the power of the individuals. Again, going back kind of to the previous thing of the economy, the, pro- the, um, the power of when wealth is so concentrated, the folks that are, have that wealth have so much power over the system. Again, of course, Big Pharma being uh, part of that. Um, but I think it's time to shift gears a bit in terms of what we're talking about. We've, we've proposed some solutions to these broad uh, how are we doing on time over there, Matt? What are we we're at? in an hour, eight minutes. Oh, boy. It's going to be a right longer now. one, huh? Yeah. Um, we've proposed some solutions. Um, again, these aren't really unique solutions. These are solutions that are talked about uh, you know, fairly often. But um, again, not radical solutions. But one thing that we do want to talk about is the culture that we have here uh, in America. Because a lot of these solutions do kind of depend on a shift of values a bit we talked briefly about like the healthcare system in regards to like if we're okay with millions millions 40 million people being uninsured instead of of funding a a medicare for all program what does that say about our culture and values if we're okay with point like one tenth of americans owning as much as 90 percent of americans what does that say about us and who we are in our culture and values um, it's similar with mass incarceration. So we want to just bring up this last point about the culture of American exceptionalism um, and kind of the values that we have. Yeah, so uh, part of this in terms of drafting solutions is we're never going to have any solutions until we have the larger societal culture get behind it. And right now we have a culture that, you know, not by accident. It's Of course, this is manufactured manufactured by interests that have an interest in manufacturing this this culture that reinforces uh, their beliefs. But we need to develop a culture that diverts from a few of these aspects that are cancerous to our large-scale society that John and I were mentioning. And what I mean by that is, to start with, we need to end this idea of American exceptionalism. We need to teach kids in school, something John and I will talk more about with some coworkers next week. Yeah. Like this idea of American, American superiority is harmful and it creates a situation where we consent to almost anything our government does because of our belief that we have had a mostly benevolent role, uh, if not a superhero like role in the past. Um, This incredibly jingoistic, militaristic uh, worship of, of violent behavior. Uh, you know, you go to a football game and you see the jet fly over. You, we have the national anthem. We have the gigantic flag across this, the field. Uh, if you go to a baseball game, they don't just do the national anthem in the beginning. They do the God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch the forever worship of the troops. We call the troop out, uh, a soldier out in the middle of 
a game or the beginning of the game to give mm-hmm. him credit or her credit um, and to heap praise upon them, and which which is fine. Um, other than that, I I think it's disingenuous. They don't care about the troops. They don't care about sending them to to wars and the all yeah. around the world. If you really cared about, it's the a troops. very hollow gesture. Yeah, and this this worship of America as a fighting force around the world without any question of like, well, what are the troops doing? Um, what are we sending them to do? What are we asking them to be willing to sacrifice their lives for? It's very unhealthy. And of course, like it's all hollow. They don't care about the troops. They, they, right. They're not going to take care of them when they come home from the wars. Yeah. I th- if you really cared about the troops, like let's, let's stop sending less of them. <laughs> you make less of them and you'd stop sending them to, to pointless wars t- to go die. Like if you really cared about the troops, you wouldn't make endless war uh, to sacrifice those troops. Yeah, and like, and further that like, the sporting events are a really good example. But like, we need to just end this idea that of America as a superior nation because it's harmful. And 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 again, we'll keep coming back to this, especially next week. But it's especially harmful because of our position of asymmetrical power in the world. It is just not the same for Americans to believe that they're superior and can do whatever they want in the world as it is for Costa Ricans because right. Americans possess a power and you know, we claim we're so democratic in theory, we influence our government, you know, right, right. Um, Costa Ricans could be the most ethnocentric. I'm just picking on them, but uh, <laughs> obviously I don't have any problem with Costa Ricans, but they could be the most ethnocentric uh, Costa Rican exceptionalist uh, culture in the world. But they're not going to be able to exert violence on right. the rest of the world in a way that America can right. in, in an exceptional way. And it all comes back, and we, we talk about this a bunch, is like the intention and impact. Like what really matters is the impact that, that folks have on, on the world around them. And, and in our case, when we have you know, America being the most powerful nation by far in, in the history of the world, we have to be really careful with our impact. So even if the intentions... And what values you're reinforcing. Sure. But even if the intentions for all of those things that you mentioned, calling out you know, veterans onto the field, waving American flags, national anthems, even if the intentions there are, are good of like, yeah, let, you know, we're, let's proud to be American, that's what it is. But the impact of that is blind patriotism in which we can do no wrong. We are the superheroes of the world. And, and again, we'll talk about this um, next week with a few other folks, but when you have a curriculum being proposed to have the youth, quote, love America with all their hearts and all their souls, unquote, by Trump. What, is that, what does that actually mean in terms of impact? Does that mean we can do no wrong in the world? And again, how many people are we willing to kill abroad in the Middle East and other, other places via sanction or war? Um, and, and hundreds of millions you know, in the past many years displaced before we say, you know what, maybe, maybe we're, we, we were wrong in an instance or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, and it's, it's deeper than just the, the sporting events. It's, you know, it's so prevalent in our, it's in our, look at our movies. You know, there's very few movies about war that don't actually get approved by the Pentagon. They, the Pentagon, <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. The Pentagon pours an incredible amount of money into Hollywood to have their, uh, war movies portrayed in a way that looks favorable to the American militarist project. I mean, we have the pledge every day when we're at school. 
Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, that actually was not a thing when I worked in the Bronx. The, mm, the, so I work in New Jersey now, but, but I've worked in two other places since I've worked in the Bronx. I've worked where I work now in New Jersey, and I worked uh, one year in Massachusetts. So for me to hear the pledge after working 10 years in the Bronx seemed odd to me. But it seems very odd to me now. Like, the more I think about it, it's like, we say the pledge every day. We have the kids say the pledge. I never enforce it. I don't know about you, John. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, yeah, no. Like, if kids, I will never call it. a kid out for not saying the. Pledge. Have you had a student who didn't say it? I've I've had lots of kids not not stand, but it's, I oh, I don't think any of them are political. I think they're all just lazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe me being unfair, but I'll never make a kid stand for the pledge. But it's just it's just such a silly gesture. It's like, all right, so I don't know if this kid said the pledge before, and then the. Even if I buy the premise that, which I don't, that that kid should say the pledge, it's like, well, how many times do they have to say it? Like, if 180, I mili- baby. If I join the military, I don't have to say the pledge every day. <laughs> At least 180 days out of the year. Right. Like, not, how insecure is this country? <laughs> you have to say the pledge, but not only that, you have to repeat it every day. Like, just, it's like, the this country's like a, like a, crazy ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend you have to you have to reaffirm your loyalty to them constantly yeah like and i know like there's all there's all like kinds of nuance there like where where the whole uh, under god wasn't even a president to like the cold war and it's very manufactured and you know like what like because I said the pledge? Can I now be convicted of treason? Is it a legal, bind, legally binding uh, statement? You have a five year old saying in kindergarten. Why are we doing this every day? It's so hilarious to me that a lot of kids still don't know the actual words, or you know, like indivisible seems to be a word forgotten. They just kind of slur over it, like I don't know what that word means. But but yeah, all of these things again. It's like it's it's actually going back to a Noam Chomsky film, manufactured consent. Um, but it's all, actually a book too. I haven't read. The oh book. yeah, I haven't read the book either. Oh, I wasn't going to be like, yeah, it's actually a book, and I I have the following points about it, and I've read, <laughs> and I've read it. No, but read it. Um, but all these things again, we have to look at our our cultural values, and if we're valuing um, kind of this American, I, you kind of mentioned this when we were talking about healthcare, like this rugged individualism type thing, where it's like, well, I don't want to pay uh, someone else's healthcare uh, costs. Again, what does that really say about us as Americans if we're willing to to not uh, set up a system in which we can all get access to basic healthcare needs, like basic healthcare needs? What does that say about um, what we value? And, and how is it that we can say so confidently to some folks that we are the best nation in the world? That we, you know, again, all these American exceptionalism points, while also having this dichotomy of having Again, 40 million people uninsured, the homelessness, half a million people homeless, um, you know, a huge working class that isn't getting paid wages that they should be getting paid. So how, like, under what metrics? And if we're going to blindly, again, like you're saying, like, say the Pledge of Allegiance, look at all these cultural things like films and, and sports and say how great we are under what, like, tell me how first, like, how are we so great? Because I think that goes into the cultural point of like Americans thinking that they're the best irrationally in some cases. Like, under what metrics are we the best? I don't. I'm not sure if I'm connecting those points. But no, you are. And um, maybe to close, it's like the idea in America to take it to a domestic area. I was just talking about internationally uh, how we view ourselves. Like, 
what the way we view ourselves domestically as a collective is also unhealthy. We, we have this worship of rich people, right? Like the, you know, we call the oligarchs, there are Russian oligarchs, right? There are, there sure. are, uh, there are kleptocracies in other oh, yeah. parts of the world. Like we live in a kleptocracy. We live in an oligarchy. We have an extremely disproportional distribution of wealth. Uh, we worship people like the Kardashians. When we talk about having, uh, providing like uh basic uh like accommodations for everybody mind when people say that's unrealistic mind you that like the kardashians live on like 20 acres like like, there's a disproportionate thing going on here uh this idea this rugged individualism that you mentioned um takes into account no one's context and what's funny is like a lot of people who who are disadvantaged by this, as we talked about before, like what's the matter with Kansas? Uh, Embrace this idea. Like anyone can be rich. No, anyone can't be rich. Uh, And a lot of us, a lot of people in this country uh, would really benefit from a, a basic guarantee of what their government owes them. Um, But everyone thinks that the next person who's going to be rich and therefore your like things that we should be entitled to that are our rights that we could claim if we all acted together that if we all acted in solidarity to scare the shit out of the oligarchs of this country we would have uh but we're too divided to understand that we're entitled to things like health care right like housing education like education and we have it too tied into our culture that these are things to be earned, right. that you need to earn your health care. You need to earn a right to have a roof over your head. And, you know, it's totally inconsistent because we have things that you don't have to earn. You know, the, we, we don't assume, you know, we don't assume that you have to earn having a kindergarten education uh, or, or a first grade education, I should say, uh, through high school. Why do we assume that you have to have a, uh, earn a college education? We don't assume that if you're in the military that you should have uh, you should earn your right to housing. No, that's something get, given to you. That's a whole other episode. The military is the most socialistic yeah. uh, institution in yeah. America, ironically. <laughs> um, you know, and we need to flip this idea on its head. And yeah, we need to understand that the wealth is not distributed on, on a, any basis of who has earned it and who works the hardest. It's it's manipulated and there are reasons for that. And, and that's, that's another episode is like, how did it get to be this way? It's because of purposeful lobbying and, de- and deregulation and, and interest being represented. People who have wealth are able to manipulate a system to maintain the status quo. Right. And until we understand that and until we shift the culture, none of the aforementioned changes that John and I recommended, whether I, I started with the, we need to submit, subordinate the United States to international law, most specifically an international criminal court. And then you were talking about, remind us what you were talking about, John. In terms of the domestic policy? Yeah. yeah in ter- we were Prison. talking about mass incarceration, the economy and tax code, and healthcare mainly. Yeah, and none of these changes are possible until we change the way that we think. Right. And we need to to accept that change is possible and the things that we think that collectively we assume are radical are not radical at all and yeah. to end like a lot of the things that we embrace as being normal are actually quite radical yeah i think the last the last big point is and it's crazy like it goes back to uh actually the 9-11 episode and what we mentioned today where we have to preface this like of course there's a detract like any um uh, any notion that 
what we did in, in the Middle East was wrong as a result of 9-11 gets this kind of like, well, that's anti-American. Um, and we've been, we've been criticized sometimes by our own family mm-hmm. of being anti-American through what we say in this podcast. And um, none of these things, none of these things pointing out, you know, the issues with uh, American policy, foreign or domestic, and proposing the solutions. None of these things are anti-American, but we have to take into context that, like, us having to say this is radical. Like, we were talking a lot about, like, these different policies that are radical that we have in America that don't exist or exist very differently in other countries. Like, us having to say when we critique some of the flaws in our country is not anti-American, like having to clarify that that point, like us going to war in countries that had nothing to do with attacking us is, is problem. Us having to say that's not anti-American is, is insane. Like no other, no other country would have to clarify, like criticizing some bit of America is not anti the country. We are trying to promote some type of solution or, or at least gain awareness around these problems for a better future for America and the world. Yeah. And, uh, what I'll end with, you can mm-hmm. you can get in something after this, but it's just we're so through the looking glass with this, as in we're we're so adjusted to believing that what we have here is normal. The reason, one of the reasons for that is we've never been forced to really reconcile reconcile with um, what the United States has done, especially overseas, because. Yeah. The United States really hasn't lost a war where they've been... We've lost wars, believe me. The, the United States hasn't won a war since 1945. <laughs> right, since World War II. Um, but we haven't lost a war in which the United States has been occupied and forced to reevaluate its own history in the way that Japan and Germany were, for example. Right. I think especially because it hasn't been on our home front. Right. And, and that has a huge effect, right? So we haven't been forced to deal with the reality. So it's like, whereas... This is a preview for next episode, so and my next article <laughs> plug. Uh, the way that Germans have really had to deal with the, the Holocaust and their 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 actions during World War Two, uh, not to make the direct comparison, but the United States really has never had to actually wrestle with what it has done. I mean, forget like the war on terror. Go back to the Cold War, like the the. the 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 CIA's actions, a, a half a dozen genocides, the overthrowing of fifty five governments or so, the the I mean Vietnam, like the, yeah. any objective person would look at Vietnam and say, well, of course America was the aggressor, killed three to four million people, the Korean War, uh, countries that weren't a threat to the United States, and we have never had to deal with that kind of reality, and because we haven't. The culture that the we were discussing earlier persists, and we haven't had a necessity to check our own behavior. But the reckoning is coming, yes. and I'm worried about what that looks like because it's gotten so far where this account there's been no accountability either for the leaders or for like people to actually check their beliefs. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'll end with today. That's a preview for next episode. Like, how should we be teaching history? Yes. Like, what is the responsibility of the person who teaches American history? Yes, and this is in the context of Trump announcing his 1776 commission, which is looking to make some sort of curriculum, some sort of patriot, patriotic curriculum, I believe he said. Um, and so we'll be talking with some folks 
some other fellow history teachers, hopefully, about their thoughts. Degenerates, mostly. Mostly degenerates uh, about their thoughts around how to, quote unquote, properly teach history um, here in America. Uh, just to remind you, my good friend here, John Lancaster, has a book that's not under oh. his name. Uh, it's under the Victor name... Stanhope. Victor Stanhope. Victor Stanhope. That's teaching... a porn star name if I ever one. <laughs> Sounds like a mustached man. Um, yes, the teaching mirror lessons learned as a first-year teacher. If you are in teaching or want to be, go check it out. Thank you, Matt, for the plug always. Um, and very exciting news is that we got a like on Twitter from uh, an author that we mentioned here in the podcast. Uh, no Good Men Among the Living was the book uh, on Matt's Twitter. Yeah, well, my uh, like less than 100 followers among them. Actually, he's not one of my followers, but I, uh, I, I figure I'm going to promote this podcast. So I started tagging people <laughs> who like we mentioned. And uh, one of them was Anand Gopal, the yep. author of No Good Men Among the Living. And I let him know, hey, we, we uh, mentioned you in our podcast. And like six days later, he gave me. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> like, I've read a lot of books this summer that I've told Matt many times well before that. Everyone life. go read it. It is the, the best book I've read this summer. So and it, yeah, and another person that uh, I believe retweeted us was uh, Danny Scherzen, uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's a ex-military a, a history professor, West, former history professor at West Point. Now he's like pretty much a anti-war writer, uh, just amazing writing. And he retweeted us, so hopefully uh, more people saw the podcast. I know we're, we're doing better in the numbers. Um, we really appreciate everyone who listens. Please share this. If you like this content, um, this is important to share. Really, yeah, it is. Important. It is. We're we're doing the Lord's work, and by that <laughs> I mean we're doing uh, our own work, and we're trying to uh, get more people to notice our stuff. But yes. um, that being said, please share this, and uh, you can check out the blog at inthecontextofempire.com. I have another article coming out tomorrow. And that it's a more lighthearted argument than the article than you might be used to. It's uh, it's the war and terror on terror in three quotes. The idiocy of the war and terror yes. in three quotes. Yeah. And I just point to three very very stupid statements that were made <laughs> by very powerful people over the course of the war and terror. And uh, it draws uh, attention to the tragic tragic farce that is this twenty year engagement. Yes, you don't want to miss that. And also, you're not going to want to miss my 85-page thesis that is, I'm sure, coming within the year. We'll see when that's coming to the blog. (laughs) Uh, But thank you so much for joining us here on In the Context of Empire. We'll catch you next time. This is John and Matt signing off. All right. Have a good week.